You're tuned into Holy Smokes, Cigars, Catholicism, and Conversation. Let my prayer arise in thy sight as incense. I'm your host, Dustin Quick, and this is episode four, part three, How Temple Theology Changed Our Minds About Christian Origins. And I have back with me my very special guest, friend and brother, Alamine Toledo. This is the third installment of our mini-series. We've had two previous episodes. Uh, Before we get into tonight's discussion, I just want to do, as I do every episode, a plug for Havana Palace here on Church Road, Windsor, Ontario, Canada. Uh, Finest cigars, best service around. Go see Caesar and Eli. They'll hook you up and just mention that you heard about Havana Palace from this podcast. So, uh, as I said, um, I have my friend, Elamine Toledo, back on to discuss uh, the temple origins of Christianity. Um, We weren't quite sure what we were going to specifically tackle in this episode as far as specific subject matter goes. So we thought, since I just finished um, episode eight with Margaret Barker, we thought, what better way to get into a discussion than pick things that have stuck with us or resonated with us from my discussion with Margaret Barker and kind of use those as, as a jump off or, or talking or discussion points and uh, see where that leads us. So um, again, for those who might not be familiar with you, Elamine, why don't you just give a, a brief in- introduction and uh, just tell listeners and viewers a little bit about yourself. Uh, peace and blessings. Thank you again, Brother uh, Dustin, for having me on. Uh, third time is a charm. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm very happy that, uh, that you uh, see our conversations as a, a blessing, and I hope uh, your audiences do as well. Um, basically, my journey started about 1988 when I was about uh, 15 years old and I had this uh, spiritual awakening where God, you know, just the reality of God and, and life and just the, the, um, the importance and, and what, why we are here and mm-hmm. what is our uh, state of affairs in regards to life and why we, uh, why were we created? And so I started to embark on what has been a lifelong journey. I embraced Islam when I was 15 and I have studied Islam in its various forms and stages from the nation of Islam to the Ansar Allah community. Uh, I have studied uh, normative Islam uh, I have sat with people from the East, scholars of the East, students of knowledge of the East. Um, I have studied under Western Islamists. Uh, I have read the materials of uh, academics um, on Islam, Christianity, Judaism, and just religion in general. Um, mm-hmm. And it kind of got to a point where the late 90s, early 2000, uh, I had came to a point where 
all the information was kind of like bubbling over. Uh, all the years of accumulating different perspectives. Uh, you know, I have, I have always been taught that the Bible was the word of God along with the Quran. Uh, and so I always use those two as my source and grounding for my journey. And I must honestly say that it, it is thanks to me holding on to those two sources, the Bible and the Quran, that has kept me rooted in the uh, biblical tradition, uh, in the uh, biblical worldview, uh, inclusive, uh, inclusive of the Quranic narrative, etc. Um, whereas a lot of others have gone in many multiple different directions that have traveled similar paths that I have. And so I have always been grounded in the, uh, in the biblical worldview. So with that said, the bubbling over in the early 2000s, uh, late 90s, early 2000s, came also at a time when I had met uh, a brother of mine, a mentor, and, you know, we, uh, we discussed on multiple occasions, you know, I, I, I sat on, I like to say that I sat under him uh, regularly and consistently. Uh, he was an academic. Uh, uh, he had a doctor degree, uh, which he later got um, in Islamic studies. Um, and things of that nature. And so, you know, he became a, a very well-respected individual in my eyes. Mm -hmm. And he was, he was one of the ones that introduced me to uh, Margaret Barker's material. And it was both Barker's material and his writings that uh, opened my eyes to the reality of the manifest God. And I would say that I had, prior to this, I had a probably a dogmatic perspective. Uh, you know, I would, I would use scriptural quotes here and there, but they were really devoid in much respects of historical context. Uh, mm -hmm. They were really devoid of scholarship. Um, it was more like, you know, like if I heard it from my pastor or something or or an imam or something, and, and I would, you know, or a minister or something, and I would, you know, utilize those quotes. But it wasn't until after meeting with uh, this academic and reading Barker's material and starting to read, because one of the first things that, well, simultaneously what kind of, brought into uh, fruition was the concept of God coming in the form of, of a man. Right. And between that, between that study and the concept of man being God, I started to see a whole new reality. And at this time, uh, during this time, I was, uh, I knew a friend of mine who was a Christian, an evangelical Christian, and he had, challenged me to write an uh, article on the deification of man, what evangelicals would call sanctification. And 
in that book, I mean, in the, uh, in the challenge, he said, look, write about a, you know, four or five page article where you're laying out your thesis that you believe that God is, that man is God. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I will rebut it. And so I started on that. And what started out as a four page article wind up turning into what later turned into a book that I had published uh, called, um, uh, I forgot the name of my book. <laughs> I can uh, I can help you out because I edited it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, Ye Are Gods. It's Ye Are yes, Gods, yes. right? The yeah, yes, Ye Are, ye are yeah, Gods. And the, and, and the subtitle is the, the Deification of Man in the Old Testament, New Testament, and Early Church. Yes, yes, thank you very much. Uh, so I presented this, this work to him and he drew a blank, you know, uh, and it just made me realize that there was more to this subject of God being a man and man being God than I had been taught otherwise. And, but what made this particular journey interesting is that much of the material, majority of the material that I had studied was from a Christian perspective, not just a modern perspective, but the early church, mm -hmm. uh, what the church fathers believed, um, what the script, how did they understand certain scriptures, you know, like partakers of the divine nature. Mm -hmm. um, and, and things of that nature. So it was, it was basically on that journey that I started to realize that even what I learned about Christianity was not accurate. Right. You know, it was, mm -hmm. it was, you know, I, I, I would say, you know, evangelical Christianity at the time is what I had pretty much knew. Uh, even though I knew of Catholicism, I just assumed Catholicism was in the same boat as evangelical Christianity. Mm -hmm. But then as I started embarking on this, this study of theosis, and I realized that uh, the Church of the East and the Church of the West and, you know, what they did, what they believed in regards to theosis. Um, I, ju I just started to understand that there was a great divide between traditional Orthodox Christianity versus what we understand Christianity to be today. Indeed. And, you know, that... It, it just so happened that a lot of what traditional Christians believe started to align with what I had believed as a Muslim. You know, um, not as a normative Muslim, but, you know, under the Ansar community, under the Nation of Islam, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the positions that I, that I understood then were, were being manifested in what I saw as the early church. And so, uh, you know, I just, that's just kicked down a whole new world and a whole new door, you know? And then, like I said, with the, with the further 
study of Barker and her understanding of temple theology, it just truly, truly concretized the, you know, the idea of not just man being God, but man, but God coming to sanctify and deify man to be like him as it was meant to be from the beginning. Indeed. Yeah. You know, and so that's pretty much the journey that I've been having ever since. And, you know, one thing I try to tell people is that spiritual journey and a spiritual reality is just that it's a journey. Uh-huh. You know, it's, it's, it's a constant awakening of the self. You know, what you know today, you're not going to, you know, or what you understand today, you will not understand tomorrow. You know, you'll grow in your understanding if, <coughs> excuse me, if you are uh, truly embarking on the study of God, because God is eternal. You know, there, there's, there's a saying uh, in Islam that if the oceans were ink and, the, and all the trees pens, never would you exhaust the wisdom of God. You know, and and I've always held that reality that, you know, how can so many people think that what they learn in 5, 10, 15, 20 years is exhaustive? You know what I mean? It, it, it's, you can never exhaust God. You can never exhaust God. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, yeah, and like I said at the beginning of my interview with Margaret, um, if it wasn't for you, I probably wouldn't know of her and her work to begin with because you were the first person to recommend uh, The Great Angel to me. And as I read that book, um, it just became so clear to me that the very first Christians, rather than, you know, seeing Jesus as a mere mortal, a mere human, they saw him as the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And this isn't something that Paul invented to appease Greco-Roman pagan audiences or Constantine invented, you know, in the fourth century to pacify his... Uh, his underlying paganism to unite the empire. No, this is something that is part and parcel of the DNA of biblical religion and that which, you know, Christ and the apostles were, were offering and manifesting. Right. So, um, and that's really, but you know, you, you, let, let me let me say this because I know there's a delay in the time, so I don't mean to sound like I'm cutting you off. But one of the interesting things that people have to stop doing when it comes to God and His truth is that God, okay, God is not going to reveal something. 6,000 years in previous time that God is not going to use terminology like cell phones, uh, you know, terminology like uh, um, 
plastic water bottles or, or, or something of that nature to, you know, in language sense, 6,000 years previous. Because the people of the time will not understand what is being said or revealed. And how can you have salvation out of the context and the time that you live in? And so when God revealed the message of Christ, the world that it was revealed in was an occupied Jewish territory. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was, you know, it was a Romanized, occupied uh, worldview in, in, in many respects. So a lot of the language that you would see would be in regards to the day and time that they lived in. But the concepts, the concepts go back older to things that predate even the, the quote-unquote so-called paganism that they got it from. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and th- this is where Barker's material, I think, is so relevant because she actually shows how these early Christian traditions predate even the Second Temple. You know, I mean, like some every you know, normative Muslims and people who attack uh, Christianity, they always, you know, try to use, especially normative Muslims. They always say, "Well, the Jews don't believe this, or the Jews don't believe that," and Christians, you know, how can they see Jesus as God? Because, you know, this concept goes against the Shema, and you know, mm-hmm. all these different things, but. They're not realizing that rabbinic Judaism is set within a, a context and a frame of thinking that was within the time frame of Second Temple Judaism. Right. You know, and and it was like it was like Margaret Barker said, and I'm not sure if she said this in your in your interview. I think she did, uh, where she said that. Oh yeah, because you guys you were talking about talking over each other's heads. The the the, the, yeah. the uh, Sadducees and the Pharisees, and so she you know she was saying that uh, that you know the early Christians were re- were talking in a first temple context, but the the Pharisees and the Sadducees were talking in a second temple context. So their ideas were talking over each other's heads. You see what I'm saying? And, and, and this is what people are not understanding when they study or look at the biblical tradition is that you're, they're cross-referencing a time that, is, that, the, that the early Christians weren't talking about. They weren't talking about Second Temple time. They were talking about First, first Temple time. And so in yeah. order to understand how any of Christian reality was even possible, you have to stand it from the, the origin. Because that's, yeah. that's what Jesus was doing. He was restoring. Restoring something that was lost. Restoring something that had fallen away. Restoring something that had lost the memory of most of the Jews that people didn't understand. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, 
and what what Alamine's referring to when I was Bar Margaret and I were, were talking was it is often assumed that you know the references to quote unquote the Jews in the Synoptic Gospel or Gospels people take it as almost a form of anti-Semitism because it you know sort of demonizes this group the Jews and they take it to mean some sort of ethnic kind of animus or slur but I, I told people and and I tell I tell people and Margaret and I were talking about this is when you hear the term the Jews in, in reference to opposition to Jesus don't think of a racial ethnic group think of the second temple religious authorities because that's who Jesus is criticizing that's the system that's the temple he's criticizing and uh, Margaret mentioned how this is perfectly sort of drawn out in the episode between uh, Jesus and Nicodemus, where Nicodemus is, he's symbolically representing second temple Judaism, but also a real person. And Nicodemus is presented as just being aloof and asking kind of silly questions. Like when Jesus is speaking about being born again, and they have Nicodemus is saying, well, how can a man be born again through his mother's womb? Just to illustrate the fact that, these two groups, you have Jesus and the apostles restoring the first temple, and you have the second temple elite. They're speaking completely different languages because they have different worldviews. Although the temples might have had structural, structural or, you know, um, similarity in terms of the adornment, uh, you know, the exterior adornment, the gold, the materials, inside the temples were very, very different. When you alter the interior of the temple, you alter its furniture, you alter its vessels, you get a completely different theology. And that's, that's exactly what has happened. And so uh, the biggest, one of the biggest takeaways from that conversation, um, I think for anybody, would be rather than just operate on the assumption that Christianity is uh, a new thing it's it's newer than mosaic second temple rabbinic judaism uh it's actually much older that's what it understands itself to be M much older than moses going back into eternity and that's very very important um so why don't we talk about well let's talk about some of the features of first temple um, first temple, quote unquote, Judaism, and uh, some of the features that stand out to us. Um, when you, when you think of like, what, what surprises, what surprised you the most uh, to learn when you, when you started seeing this, you know, dichotomy between the two temples, the first and second, what would you say are some of the biggest features of the first temple that just stand out to you, that surprise you? that you weren't expecting to find? I think, um, I don't know if it's one of the biggest, but what, what kind of popped into my mind is how everything was sanctified. Like when it came to like the furniture, um, you know, the ark, because, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, Traditionally, 
we understand, like in the in the Ten Commandments, about not making any graven images, uh, not bowing down to them, and you know, a lot of evangelical Christians. Uh, this is one of their arguments against the Catholic and Orthodox Church is that they venerate statues and icons. Mm -hmm. And they, they right away, the first thing that they point to is thou shalt not make any graven images, you know, of anything on earth or in heaven. So kind of like, you know, put it away that says, look, no matter whether you're in heaven or earth, you can't make any images. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it was funny because uh, it was later pointed out, well, right after that commandment, he commands them to make the Ark of the Covenant, <laughs> which, yeah. which had two, you know, uh, angels on it, you know. So it was like, duh, like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. you know, and um, it, it, it's just funny because, a lot of times we try to be so deep in how we understand God and we, we sit here and we try to look for the most profound reality to try to knock it out the box and sometimes just the simplest things could just stumble us. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And 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 so you know it it, it kind of tied do that reality of the the sacredness of the furniture of the temple and and I, and I would use the language uh, sanctification or deification of the furniture yeah uh, I think one of the reasons why that is permitted is because if the physical temple was a sign and symbol of the real temple, which is man and creation, then all the furniture reality has its, uh, its substance in creation, whether it's in man or in the created world. And so, you know, like, which I later learned uh, that the early church uh, believed that Mary was the ark, uh, uh, was the ark. Yeah. And so you start to see the parallels and the menorah uh, and things of that nature and the lady, uh, the tree, you know, and things of that nature. All of these different things that were inside the temple start to see their parallel in the real world right you know right. or the practical world and so you know it's 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 not really a worshiping of things you know it's as as some would like us to believe that oh look you, you're bowing down to this but in all actuality it's the worshiping of the uh macrocosm which is god himself you know right. the the reality of who the true god is he he's the hidden and the matter he's the hidden and the manifest you know and so 
when you when you I don't want to say when you worship creation, uh, because we're not pantheists. Yeah. When you, right? When you vener when you venerate creation, uh, and you understand the sacredness of creation and its relationship to the eternal covenant and how we are supposed to restore creation. And, you know, we worship in God. We right. worship God. You know what I mean? And, and so once we, once we understand this reality, then we start to see how the veneration of the furniture was permitted because it represented and symbolized a greater reality. Right. And so I would say that that was one of the things that stood out to me. Uh, even the, the the bowing to the high priest, you know, um, that that reality also was something of a shocker to me because, again, <clears throat> as as normative Islam teaches, that man is not to be bow to that there's no one worthy of worship except for God himself and so when you start to see that this was permitted in the earliest biblical strands then you know you start to ask further questions like you know is there more to this than just paganism is there more to this than just someone's interpretation is there more to this than this is just some you know rogue understanding and mm -hmm. you know my conclusion and i know everybody's conclusion is different but my conclusion is that there's validity to the christian message there's validity to the biblical world view there's 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 validity to the uh the scriptures in their historical context and i think that that's something that many people have to visit and and you know once they revisit it they because i think at the end of the day i think that people are so stuck on quote-unquote authenticity you know, everybody wants to know, oh, is this text authentic? Is that text authentic? And a lot of that stuff comes with suppositions. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, it's, it's a lot of pontificating, you know, and, and, and things of that nature. And, and so I think it takes away, it sends people on a rabbit chase. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because the reality is, is that, we have the, the manuscripts. We have the, the, the biblical tradition for the last 2,000 years. You know, we have texts that are outside normative Christian tradition that verify, you know, some of these rituals and practices that were taken. You know, like even like with, with uh, the Didache and, and uh, uh, the Eucharist. You know right. what I mean? We, we, we see that that goes back early. So... The reality of the situations is that the direction that one goes will determine the location that you wind up, the destination that you're in. 
And I think that a lot of people have been, the GPS of spirituality has been reprogrammed to send them into a different direction when if they stick to understanding Christian origins in first temple context, they will see that the biblical worldview is, or the Christian worldview is more in line with traditional biblical worldview than everyone had given credit to. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and as far as what what's, I mean, it's not, it's not shocking to me anymore because I've spent a lot of time, you know, meditating on it, studying it, praying over it. Um, but, you know, to, to when, I, when I first learned that a feature of the first temple was uh, God manifesting in human form, uh, being visible, it was a shocker because, you know, you're always taught whether you're uh, a good Orthodox Jew or Muslim that God has no physical representation and to, uh, to uh, prostrate yourselves to a man would be the height of idolatry. But then to learn that the high, the, before the, uh, you know, the Mosaic Covenant, and the, the Levitical priesthood, that uh, there was uh, priest kings in Jerusalem and they had a dual rule. Yes, they were monarchs. Yes, they were kings, but they were also priests. And th th this is the title, uh, which Margaret says is not a personal name, but a title. Uh, Melchi, meaning king and Zadok priest, right? So you have, uh, uh, or righteous. So you have one who is a priest and a king simultaneously. And what they did was they were anointed in the Holy of Holies um, by the lady. So there was a lady in the Holy of Holies who was the mother of the priest king. And when he was anointed, in the Holy of Holies, it was understood that this was his deification. This was his resurrection. And so he became resurrected. He partook of the divine nature and he was a son of the most high God, his father and a son of the lady, his mother. And at this point, the priest King was understood to be the presence of Yahweh on earth in his temple, seated in power with the congregation, with his people, and they would actually make prostration to him as Yahweh. I mean, that, that's huge because the first thing that comes to your mind is, you know, the story of uh, the nativity, right? Where the high priest is a son of God, most high, the father. And he's also a son of the lady and he is anointed. And he emerges from the Holy of Holies, which is his mother's womb. He's given priestly garments, uh, the garments of flesh, which she gave him. And he's made visible to the world and can be worshipped as God, even though his divinity is hidden in human form. So we have uh, Jesus as the fulfillment of the priest king who was anointed and uh, is visible to creation 
and uh, one of his titles is Emmanuel, and that was one of the titles of uh, the priest kings in Jerusalem. So that was a huge, huge thing for me. Um, and then there, you know, there's the whole issue of, uh, you know, what is the eternal covenant? You've got, you know, every, and like Margaret said, to me, everybody focuses so much on Moses. Um, it's not to say, not, it's not to slight Moses or the Mosaic covenant at all, but I mean, we all know that the Mosaic covenant was instituted as a result of Israel's sin by worshiping the golden calf. So there had to be something that preceded this. And certainly scripture tells us that there was, I mean, you had a covenant with Adam, you had a covenant with Noah, um, which also included all of creation, not just, you know, man and God. You had the covenant with Abraham, uh, who he, coincidentally, he meets Melchizedek, he meets the king of righteousness, and he's offered bread and wine. And Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, and so is David. So there's more to this story than just simply, here's the Ten Commandments, here's the 613 mitzvot in, in uh, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's so much more to this. And so people need to understand that this Mosaic Covenant was a temporary dispensation. And the restoration, I, I know it's called the New Covenant, but, and, and that term that is somewhat misleading in the sense that it gives you the impression that, well, this is newer than the old covenant. But in fact, it's a restoration or it's a returning to the older eternal covenant, which preceded and is superior to the law of Moses. And that's precisely Paul's point. Um, and so, you know, some of the features of this, this first covenant was the, um, the priesthood of Melchizedek. Uh, which Jesus is, you know, is a priest after that order. He is the priest king. He is God with his people. He has a queen mother at his right hand, and she made him visible to the world. Um, so that's that's a huge part of this this uh, first temple worldview. You know, I, I as you were just speaking, a thought came to my mind, and it's perspective is important, and I think that in the concept of new covenant, I think people get tripped up in that, you know, they, they get uh, stumbled over the concept, the concept of new. And if you think about it, if, if, if Jesus is the last Adam or for, for lack of better wording, the new man, and that means that the covenant or the 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 the, the uh, promise that God is establishing with man through Christ is a newness. Yeah. You know, because it is now in Christ who is now the technically the first man of that new process. Right. And in that sense, it could be looked at as a new covenant, but it's something that God has been seeing since time immemorial. 
right. you know, because as it says in the scriptures, uh, you know, before the foundations of the earth, you know, and so, you know, I think that uh, when people don't broaden their ability to perceive, they get boxed in and they only see what they want to see. You know what I mean? And, and, and this causes, you know, I remember one time uh, a church that I used to go to many years ago, the pastor in the church used to say, uh, what glasses are you wearing today? And he would go into and talk about how people, when they put on their preconceived shades, it blocks their vision from seeing the reality of things, you know, and, and so that a lot of times our experiences do not allow us to see the, the, the forgiveness of God, you know, the, our experiences sometimes do not allow us to forgive others the way God forgives us and things of that nature, you right. know, so I just wanted to say that because as you as you were speaking, I was listening to what you were saying, and it just it just hits you, you know. And that's the thing about divine truth is that when you open up yourself to be able to 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 the possibilities of understanding scripture, you 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 really don't see contradictions. You know, it, mm. it's like it brings me to a time where when 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 uh people used to pick at the Bible in the, in the Bible contradictions, mm -hmm. they would say something like, Oh, uh, on, on said, God said, let there be light. And then light wasn't created the fourth day or, you know, or something of that nature. So they would say, see the, you know, the Bible is filled with contradictions. Right. And this is, the interesting thing about this is this ties in to how we understand Genesis mm -hmm. as not being speaking of the lead in the form where it's talking about creation. And so, and it, it brings me back to something that I read many years ago uh, in talking about the uh, primordial light and uh, the body of God. And this, this is in the book, uh, The Truth of God uh, by Dr. Wesley Muhammad. And he says, he goes and he says, um, what is the nature? And he's talking about the light of Genesis uh, 1. Mm -hmm. He says, what is the nature of this light that emerged from darkness? It is clearly unrelated to the sun, which was not created until day four, and which is a tool refracting the primordial light to the earth. Ed Nort correctly perceived that the light of verse three is presented as an attribute of Elohim himself. <clears throat> Nicholas Wyatt, in a close study of the poetic form of Genesis 1-2, observes that the logical structure of the verse indicates that a process of being identified within the verse, the process involves the initial stages 
in the self-manifestation of the deity. It is in some unusual form an account of a theophany. This initial theophany actually begins at verse 3 with the emergence of divine light from the darkness of verse 2. As in the Egyptian original, the emergence of light from the darkness was the emergence of the creator God in his luminous form from darkness. While this is only implicit in Genesis 1, for the priest was an esotericist, it is made explicit in other temple materials. <clears throat> ben Zion Wackolder has recently argued that Ezekiel's vision of the Kavod Yahweh, Ezekiel 1, was interpretation of Genesis 1-3. The light of day one represented by the luminous anthropomorphic form of God seen by the priest prophet. Most important is Psalms 104. That this is a temple psalm is clear. Paul Humbert in a seminal article argued that both Genesis 1 and Psalms 104 originally served as a librettos in Jerusalem temple. So, and he goes on to say other things, but just for time's sake, I, I, I stopped there. But he goes on to show, I mean, he, he, he's speaking about how there is no contradiction between the light of Genesis 1, 3 versus the fourth day light. And how one is speaking about the self-revelation of God's luminous body and things of that nature. And so until one understands temple theology, one would miss that. And sure. one, would, one would stay left with the idea that the Bible contradicts itself, Mm -hmm. I'm not, you know, going to follow this. This is garbage. This is, yeah, yeah. you know, ancient child philosophy and et cetera. But when we understand that the, these priests were so much wiser and the, the receivers of, of scripture were so much wiser than, than we give them credit for, that Two, three, four, five thousand years later, we're still unwrapping the wisdom behind it mm -hmm. in the form of temple theology. Yeah, I'm, I'm very glad that you brought that point up because um, we have to stop interpreting Genesis as a zoological, you know, geological kind of... Uh, you know, high school textbook. So it, it, it pains me to see when, to me, when I see debates on Genesis and, and the historicity and the scientific accuracy of gener Genesis, and you have Christians versus atheists or creationists versus evolutionists. I, I feel like both sides are at a loss. I mean, the debate is already lost before it has begun. Because neither of the sides are correctly identifying the genre and purpose of Genesis, which is the building of a temple. Mm -hmm. So we ask ourselves, well, what's the purpose of a temple? It's a place where God dwells. It's God's house. And there are effectively two temples. 
there's the macrocosmic temple, which is the cosmos. And then there's the microcosmic temple, which is built by man, but a place where God can dwell microcosmically and be with creation in miniature as he is macrocosmically and he fills the universe. So like you said, it, we have in, uh-huh. <clears throat> we have in Genesis one, which is also remarked at in John one, the word, right? We have this the second person, um, which is the thought the father's own image. It's the image, the thought of himself imaged, and that image is a divine anthropos, a man, and it's the man of light. And this is the underpinning of all reality. So this luminous form, in order to sustain creation, wraps himself in the created elements or veils his glory as a priest because the Logos is a a great high priest between God and the creation and mediates. So he wraps himself in priestly vestments. And so his glory is veiled in matter. This is on the macrocosmic level. Oh. And we have this replicated microcosmically in the Jerusalem temple. When the priest vests, the priest is effectively enacting the drama of Genesis 1. Because as God, the light, cloaks himself or veils himself in matter, the priest is wearing a white linen garment symbolizing that man of light. And the outer garment that is put over top symbolizes the priest of light veiling himself in the created elements, earth, air, fire, water. This was the four elements when pushed together, if you will, make a purple. And so God comes into his temple and dwells there veiled in matter. So the high priest in the Jerusalem temple was doing what the high priest, the Logos, does at creation invest himself as in a temple as in a a temple ceremony so this is the background of genesis which is also the background of the jerusalem temple ritual of the high priest and 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 the interesting thing that people are understanding is that theology is rooted in practicality and reality and so the rootedness of or the reality of all that symbolism that is spoken of in scripture is it's relatedness to who we are as humans you know who we are uh, uh, as as who, who we are meant to be in, in, in our original form or in our original state, which is God manifested. Yeah. And, you know, it's as, you know, as the Quran uh, sta- states uh, God's uh, vice chairman. And so all of the symbols and the rituals and things that take place in the, in the temple are symbols of a, of, of a greater reality. And until we understand that, we will continue to fall short 
and creation will continue to be in disharmony. You know, and, and it's it's funny because I was listening to Barker today on, a, on another video, and she said, you know, when we when when we speak in 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 uh, religious terms, when we speak of uh, creation, we don't speak of the environment. You know, we speak of creation mm -hmm. because the the unity and the unison of creation uh, uh, is a oneness. Mm -hmm. You know, and and you know, it's not like it's it's not something that's over there that we can worry about it. it when when creation as a whole is in disharmony, that means man, that means the animals, that means mm -hmm. the trees, that means the skies, everything is out of order. It's chaos. You know, and 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 this is what People have to understand this is why walking in righteousness and walking in the in the way of the Lord is so important because it is a matter of harmonizing creation again. It is a matter of coming back to our original state of affairs. You know, and, and if we if we continue to be victims of our situations, if we continue to say, I'm just a sinner, you know, like we, we you know, a lot of, I, I find, and, and I think this is one of the reasons why Muslims uh, push away from Christian theology is because it's like, it's almost like an acceptance of your sinfulness, you know, at least in an, in, in, in an evangelical uh, uh, state, you know what I mean. Um, and 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 whereas, you know, God has given us the ability, both through Christ and through the Spirit that dwells in us, to lift up. You know what I mean? To 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 be resurrected and to be partakers of the divine nature and to walk in holiness. You know, be ye perfect even as your father in heaven is perfect. You know what I mean? And um and so there's so much, you know, faith without works is dead. You know, there's so many scriptures that 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 lend to this issue of holiness, you know, and, and sanctification that you're just you're not you're not deified in name, you're deified and you're empowered to live a, a, a life of holiness, you know, and to walk in the light of righteousness and in God, you know, and, and, and too often we give into in, in this victim mentality that we're just broken, that we're just weak, that we're just, you know, no, we're, we're, we're not. I mean, you think about Christ's suffering, you think about all the things that he went through you know, he basically held the universe on his shoulders. Yeah, literally, yeah. You know, and, you know what I mean? And so that's strength. You know what I mean? That's not weakness. That's not brokenness. You know what I mean? And so, and if we are supposed to be imitators of Christ, if we're supposed to be, uh, uh, 
you know, we're supposed to put on Christ. We're supposed to renew our mind, renew our thinking. You know, all of these things are empowerment tools that we understand that we could have or take our rightful seat as, as kings, as priests, you know, and, and have victory. You know, all of these, all of the scriptures that talk about, you know, success in, 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 in Christ and in God, they're not just there as mere cheers. You know, they're, yeah. they're, they're re there's reality to these things. And so I think that uh, a lot of times, often, because of our misunderstanding of scripture and because of our misunderstanding of who we are uh, in Christ, uh, the new Adam, uh, who we are in God, uh, the most high, uh, that we, we tend to uh, give in to the, to the powers of darkness. And yeah. we just say, oh, you know what? Christ is going to take care of all this. You know, he's going to, but Christ is supposed to be in us. You know what I mean? We're supposed to be the body. We're supposed to be the, the movement. You know, we're supposed to be the hand. We're supposed to be the arm. We're supposed to be the, the leg. We're supposed to be the heart. We're supposed to be the, the organs that, that manifest in the, the world. That's the whole concept of microcosm and macrocosm, is that we are the statue. We are the cult statue of the most high. You see what I'm saying? And it's not just that we are to be adorned in our state, but we're supposed to be, in, you know, enactors of God's providence in this world. Amen. And because, yeah. be, because we don't take that, that position, because we as believers don't live that life in practical reality, we're, 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 mean, we're given to victimization. And 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 we we and and you know we how can I say this we we're content in our sorrow you know what I mean we're we're content in our sorrow and not realizing that there's another part to the story mm -hmm. there's a resurrection. You see what I'm saying? There's a yeah. glorification. The cross, the sorrow is one aspect of the drama. But the drama doesn't stop at the cross. Right. You see what I'm saying? There's, there's a fulfillment. There's a walking into, into the glory. And I think that this is what many believers fail to understand in their walk. But it's, it's in my perspective, it's because they fail to understand the temple theology. You see what I'm saying? And they, they fail to understand what their role is as, as a priest. You mm. know, and, and so there's so much to be said on this on this issue. Yeah, very, very profound. Very profound. Um you know, and and the whole thing about like you said, being in Christ is not just to be adorned with a status, almost like an empty status, like uh, you're, you're forgiven. And for, for a lot of people, that's what it means. It means you're forgiven, so you're covered. You're literally covered. But the whole point of being in Christ, which is a repeated theme in the New Testament, is 
you're indwelt by God precisely so that God could live his life through you in the world. And if we take up that call seriously, not only will we be transformed, but our families will be transformed and ultimately the whole creation. Because, you know, like you said earlier, um, people say, well, Christ will just take care of it all. Well, the whole point is that Christ will take care of it in and through you, in and through your cooperation. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. You know, it's it's funny. Uh, I was just looking at it, and then you had mentioned something. Uh, I think this is it. Uh, you had said something about um, hollow... Uh, like hollow reality, like, like, like something an em- that empty that, status. Yeah, with just a name. Yeah. Right now, it's funny because it's funny because cult statue. Right, many people would think when they think of cult statue, they think of an empty shell. Right, and so they say, well. There's really nothing in that shell, right? And it, and it comes, it's interesting because, and I said it before you, you said that, and it was talking about in, um, in a Jewish tradition and in an Islamic tradition, it talked about, uh, it says in, in Genesis Rabbah, uh, we read, said Rabbi Hoshaya, when the Holy One, blessed be he, came to create the first man, the ministering angels mistook him, Adam, for God, since man was made in God's image and wanted to say before him, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. In the Islamic version, the angels are disabused of this belief once it was learned that Adam's body was hollow. Mm. It said, Allah, the angels well knew has a compact and solid in Arab Samad body. And then it talks about, however, once Allah blew, into, blew his breath into Adam's body, he lived and the angels made prostration before him. This is a picture of Allah's incarnation in the body of Adam was explicitly stated by some of the Muslims of Baghdad or whom al-Baghdadi labeled Hululiyah, the incarnationist. So I find that interesting because he talks about how Satan, when God created the stat, the cult statue, or the angels created the cult statue, that his body was hollow. And so in, in one of the, the, the Islamic traditions, it said that he hit the body and he heard a ring because of of its hollowness Mm -hmm. and you know it's it ties into what you're saying that (coughs) when people look at some believers they see a hollow person they see an empty person a for lack of better wording a dead shell yeah but what separates that person that quote-unquote cult statue is that when God breathes his spirit 
or the spirit of Christ or the Holy Spirit in us, that makes us samad. That makes us al-hay, the, the living. Yeah. And it makes God present within us and empowers us. And this, I think, is important because this is what separates man from being a mere shell versus man being in his rightful state, right. you know, as, as the high priest. And so, uh, th again, this ties into temple theology and how we are to understand the biblical narrative and our duty. What is our duty as priests? Like, what are we here for? Are we just here to do a bunch of rituals on a Sunday morning and, and go back and just sit on our chairs and, you know, drink our coffee and, and read a couple of Bible verses and, and, you know, and that's it. Like what is, what is the duty, you know, in, in, in the 5%, they used to say, what is the duty of a civilized man? Hmm. You know? And, and so this is, this is what, from from my perspective, this is what the Quran teaches is that man has a responsibility, a duty to not only God, but to creation. You see what I'm saying? And that we cannot sit at home and wait for a mystery God to bring us food, clothing, and shelter. You see what I'm saying? That God is a reality that that is within us that enlivens us, you know, he's the animator mm -hmm. of our beings. You see what I'm saying? And so we cannot, you know, it's like Margaret Barker said in your interview uh, with her, uh, I think it was your interview or, or it might've been the video that I watched when she talked about, uh, there was a picture of uh, in Christian art, early Christian art, where they had a picture of Jesus's feet, like lingering in, in this world, but it was like he was going up to the heavens. And she says, it makes for a nice painting, but it makes for bad theology. You know what I mean? Because God is not in the sky. You know what I mean? God, mm -hmm. he, he's not up there. There is no pie in the sky. You know, and you and I have discussed this before, is that, you know, the hidden and the manifest are united as one. It's just our perception and our inability to see that reality that hinders us from that progress. You mm -hmm. see what I'm saying? And it is only those who are in Christ, it is only those who are in Christ that that veil has been removed and that we are able to see God for who he is. You see right. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And we no longer have to be, as believers, we no longer have to be separated from that other world. That's why, as Barker said, the kingdom of God is at hand or within you. You see what I'm saying? It, the reality starts now. The practicality starts now. You know, there is no, you know, like in Rocky, the movie Rocky, I said, there is no tomorrow. <laughs> you know, yeah. the reality is, is that we are living in, we are living in that reality now. You know, and, and as long as we sit at home and wait for that, that mystery God to, 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 what he does to continue to rule and continue to do what they do 
and we will continue to have a defeated uh, state of, of existence. Yeah, very well said, brother. Very true. Uh, anything else that you wanted to, uh, to discuss? Um, no, I mean, just, I, I just looked, glanced at my paper from earlier today, and I just noticed that one of the things which just ties into uh, what we've been talking about is that Barker had mentioned that we are collectively the high priest, and that our job or our duty is self-sacrifice, mm -hmm. you know, the same way that Christ sacrificed himself. You know, and, and this, you know, she, she had mentioned that this is contrary to the way of the world. You know, the way of the world is live your best life now. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Um, the way of the world is, is uh, you know, gimme, gimme, gimme. Do as thou will. You know, it's, it's all self-fulfillment. You right. know, love yourself first. Love yourself first. You know, and, and but... The reality is, is that self, if understood in its proper context, is included, including your neighbor. Right. Love your neighbor as thyself. You see what I'm saying? My brother is those who believe as I believe. My mother is those who believe as I believe. There's a unity that we don't see. And because of our fleshly life, we don't understand that. So we're, we're content, again, with the big homes. You know, we're content with, with trying to work for this world, but we're not content in working for, for lack of better wording, the next. You know what I mean? And, and so uh, as, long as, as long as we have our big uh, Vizio Walmart TVs, 50, 60 inch, you know, we can watch our, our game uh, on Sunday, you know, and it doesn't contradict without going to church so we can hear the feel-good message, you know, we're okay with that as, as, as humans. And the reality is, is that that's a defeated life. You know, it's, it's a defeated life, and there's more to our uh, calling than that, you know. And, you know, tie, it, it ties all into temple theology, and once we understand the whole point of creation and the priesthood. Yeah. Very well said. Well, um, I think we'll, uh, we'll tie it up there. Um, this is again, uh, episode four, part three of Holy Smoke, Cigars, Catholicism and Conversation, how temple theology changed our minds about Christian origins. I'm your host, Dustin Quick, and my guest is my friend and brother, Elamine Toledo, and uh, we'll probably do some future episodes, God willing, but uh, for now, we're, I'll just close in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. We'll see you very soon. God bless you and your families. Some blessings.